Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here, the digital media editor. Uh, Thank you so much for all the positive reviews you've been leaving on various podcast platforms. It really does help us to reach new audience members. And today we're talking all about asymptomatic AF. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jason Andrada from Vancouver, British Columbia and Canada. And I will make the paper open access for a few weeks after this podcast comes out. Uh, His paper is called Assessment and Management of Asymptomatic Atrial Fibrillation, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining me today. I wonder if I can start off by having you introduce yourself for the heart audience. Um, Who are you, where do you work, and what do you do there? My name is Jason Andrade. I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist in uh, Vancouver, Canada. And Jason, maybe you could uh, start off by giving us some background to this work. What prompted you to to write this Education in Heart piece all about uh, assessment and management of asymptomatic AF? Uh, a lot of my clinical focus, as well as my research focus, has been around atrial fibrillation. I'm uh, the co-chair of the Canadian Atrial Fibrillation Guidelines. Uh, I work uh, within our provincial government on heart rhythm care. And so this this work is kind of a combination of all of those things. Now, we know that there's a lot of opportunity to improve care for patients with atrial fibrillation. Now, we know that atrial fibrillation is a very common clinical problem that is uh, encountered by pretty much everyone in the spectrum of healthcare. So whether you're a cardiologist or just an internal medicine specialist, a family physician, an anesthesiologist, I mean, pretty much everyone is going to have to see patients with atrial fibrillation. And so because of that, it's important that, um, you know, we are all aware of the best evidence uh, so that we can try and provide the best care. So a lot of the focus around the work that I've done either nationally through the guidelines or provincially through the government is knowledge translation and making sure that we can, you know, get best practices uh, or at least get the knowledge to best practices in place. And this review in particular focuses on asymptomatic atrial fibrillation. Maybe we can start off with a few definitions, if that's okay with you. Can you walk us through the difference between clinical atrial fibrillation, subclinical AF, and silent AF, just in case folks aren't completely up to speed with what you mean by those various terms? Yeah, so it's um, a way to differentiate the spectrum, right? So atrial fibrillation has a variable presentation. People can be highly symptomatic, immediately going to the emergency room to get a cardioversion. Uh, Patients can be minimally symptomatic living with their atrial fibrillation uh, all the time, or patients can be uh, completely asymptomatic and uh, have no awareness that they're in atrial fibrillation. And so part of the problem is when we uh, don't think about the definitions or at least only rely on symptoms is we're missing a large proportion of patients with atrial fibrillation. So the way we've defined it as clinical atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation, which is apparent to the patient and to the clinician. It's the usual atrial fibrillation that we think of encountering. Uh, silent atrial fibrillation is when it's you know clinically meaningful, meaning that maybe someone's in persistent AFib, uh, but they just don't have any symptomatic awareness of it. Subclinical AFib is typically the atrial fibrillation that's short-lived that we detect on continuous monitoring devices. So patients with pacemakers or loop recorders or defibrillators, where you incidentally find these little bursts of abnormal atrial activity, um, that's what we call subclinical AFib. And we'll certainly come on to that later. But early on in the beginning of your piece, you talk about the prevalence of atrial fibrillation is rising. Uh, Why do you think that might be? What are some reasons for that? 
Uh, it's probably a combination of increased recognition of atrial fibrillation uh, as we have more patients being monitored uh, long term with you know pacemakers and ICDs. We're finding more atrial fibrillation. Uh, we also know that the demographics of the population are changing. So we have an aging population, age being a very uh, common risk factor for developing atrial fibrillation. And plus, in the Western world, we have you know increasing comorbidities that lead people to having atrial fibrillation, like hypertension, diabetes, increased body weight, and sedentary lifestyle. Uh, so you know, an increase in risk factors, an increase in um, kind of aging population, and an increasing recognition of atrial fibrillation is leading us just to encounter it more and more. And it's pretty common, isn't it? You um, do you have any figures off the top of your head that you can give us for how common atrial fibrillation is in the in the general population, and then maybe in the in the older population? Yeah, I mean, in general, we used to say atrial fibrillation was about 1%. I think the more accurate number is uh, current estimates would put it about 2% in terms of clinically apparent AFib. Uh, if you include silent AFib and uh, device-detected AFib, the prevalence may be even higher, about 3 or 4%. Um, you know, it changes with age. Uh, when you're under age 60, it's typically less than 1%, and then you start to see a, a rapid rise. And so you'll see about 18% of patients over age 80. And so that steep inflection point happens around 55, 60 years of age, where it just rises very rapidly in terms of prevalence. And just in terms of managing clinically apparent AF, maybe you could give us a quick mention of of the sort of standard pathways. Most people will be familiar with it, but just to set the scene for how we're going to come on and talk about um, subclinical and silent AF. How would you manage standard AF just in the very broadest sense? Yeah, so I mean, standard AFib, we think about uh, several pillars of management and, uh, you know, the European guidelines use the ABC approach. So anticoagulation, so focusing on reducing stroke, which is the most devastating complication of atrial fibrillation. Uh, the B stands for better symptom management, and we typically divide that into rate control or rhythm control, so the focus on managing the rhythm itself. And then C is focusing on comprehensive care, so cardiovascular and comorbidity optimization. So, you know, atrial fibrillation doesn't occur in isolation. These patients often uh, have high blood pressure, have diabetes, have risk factors that could be optimized. And um, I, I found something very interesting that you mentioned, the EAST AF trial, um, where it seems that if you can get in uh, to a patient who's just had a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, um, interventional management may be better for those folks. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, historically, uh, there were several studies done in the early 2000s, which compared rate control to rhythm control for established AFib. Uh, those studies didn't uh, observe a significant benefit between those two approaches. So, you know, for the past 20 years, we've kind of taken the view that, you know, leaving someone in atrial fibrillation and slowing down their heart rate is as good as trying to get them back into a normal rhythm. Uh, EAST was a study that completed a couple of years ago, and it really changed the paradigm. So basically what they did is study patients with newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation, uh, in patients with newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation, uh, a more aggressive approach at controlling the rhythm uh, was associated with reductions in cardiovascular death and reductions in stroke. And so really the focus on um, newly diagnosed patients really trying to keep them in the normal rhythm did have benefits in terms of those hard cardiovascular outcomes. And let's move on now to silent AF. Um, can you talk about the risk of stroke in silent AF and how that may or may not differ from, should we say, standard AF? Yeah, so, you know, the, the issue here is that people often attribute a lot of the management of atrial fibrillation down to symptoms. 
So, you know, you have to have awareness of your atrial fibrillation or you have to be symptomatic of your atrial fibrillation. Um, I think the the more recent recognition is silent atrial fibrillation or atrial fibrillation that patients aren't aware of confers the same negative risk profile. So the risk of stroke doesn't seem to be any different whether you have symptoms related to your AFib or not. Uh, the benefit of anticoagulation at reducing the risk of stroke doesn't seem to be any different whether you have uh, symptoms or not. Now, the interesting thing is there was a sub-analysis of EAST, which was confirmed in a couple of other studies that showed the benefits of rhythm control uh, didn't matter if you had symptoms or not in terms of the reductions in stroke and cardiovascular morbidity. And it makes sense, right? Like, so if, if it is the rhythm disorder that is the problem and it's the abnormal, you know, contraction in the atria that leads to strokes, then whether I have symptomatic awareness of, of my AFib or not really has no impact on the negative influence of the atrial fibrillation. And so for patients who have uh, no awareness of their atrial fibrillation, uh, it doesn't really change anything for us. I think we have to treat it the same as clinically apparent AFib. And that's a huge point, isn't it? So that listeners should should basically ignore the fact the patient doesn't have symptoms. If you incidentally find AF, then it should just be treated in the same way. Obviously, yeah. there may be no need for symptom control because they don't have any, but in terms of thromboembolic risk, it's exactly the same as you say, and maybe even higher because uh, the patients are not exposed to good treatment, right? Preventive treatment because they don't know about the diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, that's always the problem, right? When patients have no symptoms related to their disease, it's hard to undertake preventative treatments because they just feel the impact of the disease. Yeah. And how should we or should we screen for silent AFib? Uh, and maybe could you outline how the various guidelines tell us we should go about doing this? Yeah, so this is a, a, a non-consensus-based kind of response in the sense that different societies take different approaches to screening. Um, within Canada, we took the approach that uh, we wanted to balance yield and impact. And so we recognize that the likelihood of finding uh, clinically inapparent or silent atrial fibrillation uh, again, has that inflection point around that age of 60, 65 years of age. And so we we recommend targeted screening for patients over age 65 because we're more likely to find the atrial fibrillation. And if we do find atrial fibrillation, that's an indication for antithrombotic therapy. So it's, it's actionable atrial fibrillation when it's found. Um, within the Canadian guidelines, we don't recommend, you know, setting up a booth in the mall and screening for atrial fibrillation with ECGs. We recommend, you know, checking a pulse every time you see a patient during any health encounter, because if you find an irregular pulse, that's a good enough as a screening test. It's not very specific. So then you go, have to go on and confirm that with something. Um, the European guidelines are a little bit more aggressive in terms of screening. Uh, the American guidelines are less aggressive in screening. And so the Cadian guidelines kind of sit between the two in terms of recommending whether or not we should do it. And just in terms of, uh, to finish off, device detected or subclinical AF, again, in the just reading around your paper in the literature, it seems unclear as to how we should define it. Um, do you have a, a cutoff that you use for defining when AF defected on the device becomes important? Yeah, so device-detected AFib is um, a, a hard one to pin down. So, you know, it's been called various things. So I, I think I, I used both the subclinical AF and the device-detected AF um, definitions. Uh, other groups refer to them as ARIES, so A-H-R-E, which uh, signifies atrial high rate events. Uh, you know, the argument for using that definition is kind of the justification for why we don't really know what to do in the sense that we don't really know if this is atrial fibrillation. What we're seeing is rapid heart rates in the atrium. 
Uh, usually it's only minutes at a time. So some people use six minutes. Um, and so we don't know what the impact of that is. And, you know, epidemiological studies suggest that the risk of stroke with these types of arrhythmia episodes is much lower than clinically apparent AFib or silent AFib. Um, so therefore, the benefit of anticoagulation of these episodes, uh, we don't know if it's there. And, you know, recently, you know, a month ago at uh, the ESC meeting, the NOAA AFNET study came out, which randomized patients with these episodes to anticoagulation or not. And they did not observe a benefit in terms of stroke reduction or mortality reduction. And they did observe uh, a significant harm with uh, anticoagulation therapy. And so the lack of standardized definitions, the unclear impact of these episodes um, lead to difficulties with treatment choices. And just in terms of um, your the final uh, figure in your uh, paper here, you talk about um, 24 hours being a reasonable uh, place to settle in terms of if the device detected AFib goes on for more than 24 hours, you should probably treat it as AFib and just get on and manage it. Is, is that what the guidelines are coalescing towards? Yeah, so, you know, what where that comes from is uh, if you look at several studies that have examined these subclinical or device-detected atrial fibrillation, there's always been an association with these episodes and future risk of stroke, right? And the problem is, is the association has never been quite uh, linked to pathophysiology. There was a more recent study, uh, which was a secondary analysis of a CERT done by uh, Van Gelder. And what they saw in that study was the um, the risk of stroke seemed to be more closely tied to episodes of atrial fibrillation that last longer than 24 hours, but seemed to be unrelated to episodes that were shorter. And so when we talk about these atrial high rate episodes uh, and uh, subclinical AF or device detected AFib, we're, we're really focused on episodes that are longer than several minutes, but less than 24 hours. And that's where we don't know what to do with it. Once it's over 24 hours, it seems to behave very similar to uh, silent AFib or clinical AFib. And that's where the risk of stroke seems to sit. Uh, so for that, we think it's fairly clear that once it's over 24 hours of continuous AFib, go ahead and uh, treat it with stroke prevention therapies because there's benefit there. But under 24 hours is where we haven't seen randomized evidence to inform our practice. And presumably there are trials still ongoing, uh, a bit like the one you alluded to earlier on in that area. Yeah, so Artesia is the other trial. It's uh, similar to NOAA, except it's a slightly higher risk population with uh, a longer term follow-up. And we should be hearing results from them in probably uh, two months or so. So, you know, we will get clarity Although if the results differ from NOAA, then we may get a confusion as well. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Dr. Andrade. It's been a real pleasure. I'll make your paper open access for a few weeks after the podcast comes out, if it's not already. And uh, yeah, I would direct all listeners to go and download it. Uh, the figures particularly I found uh, really useful for summarizing the evidence and uh, explaining what we should be and shouldn't be, uh, be doing in this area. So thanks so much. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.